Good evening. It's good to be here again. Will you join your hearts with mine as we pray before we open up the Word of God? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that you have given us your living words, words of life, words of hope, words that convict, the words that do surgery in our hearts, that bring our hearts to light, that shine light into the darkness. And as we come before you now to open up your word and listen to you, would you speak to us, Lord, and help us to respond with faith, hope, and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Our reading tonight is quite short, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The Apostles' letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Children are natural mimics. Um, I think many of you know that. My wife and I have been reminded of this quite recently by way of our three-year-old daughter uh, who goes to a Roman Catholic daycare center. She goes there daily. And one day when I picked her up from daycare, she started talking to me about her day uh, and what she learned about uh, her friends, what she learned about God. And so I try to explain the nature of the Trinity to her, you know, as you do with three-year-olds. Um, and I told her, there's one God, there's only one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And immediately, without hesitation, she replied, Amen. And in my surprise, I also blurted out, Amen. Uh, we've never taught her that. And it soon dawned on me that she picked this up at daycare. And so I've taken to saying, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, every chance I get around the house just to get her to say, Amen. And she does every single time, without fail. It's a lot of fun. Children are natural mimics. That's how they learn. That's how they grow and develop into adulthood. And, and, the, and the people that they most naturally imitate are their parents. Even children who grew up with parents who failed to love them well still imitate their parents, often to their dismay. When a child is dearly loved and deeply cared for, their natural mimicry becomes something more as they enter into adulthood. Their mimicry turns into aspiration, a deep desire to model themselves after the likeness of the father or mother who so loved them well. And this is good. This is as it should be. And that is the picture of spiritual growth that the Apostle Paul paints for us here in Ephesians chapter 5. We learn to walk lives that are worthy of the gospel as we delight in our heavenly Father's love for us and we seek to imitate him in every way. How do we imitate God? We imitate God by walking in love. We also do so by rejecting sin in verses 3 to 6. But this evening, we're just going to focus in verses 1 and 2. We learn to imitate God by walking in love. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
Now, what is the word therefore pointing us back to? It points immediately back to the final verse of chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He's saying, through God's kindness and forgiveness of you in Christ, you have become beloved children of God. So live lives that are becoming of beloved children. Live lives that are worthy and fitting of God's holy children. The word translated beloved here in verse 1 is a really interesting one. In the classical era, it meant beloved, obviously, or contented, contented, because it referred particularly to an only child to whom the parents had devoted all their love. The idea is that the only child was child was so dear and so precious to the parents and had received so much attention and so much care that the child felt deeply loved, deeply secured, deeply contented. It's the same word that is used repeatedly in the New Testament to describe how God the Father relates to Jesus, his only begotten son. Every parent knows how difficult it is to love and care for even one child well. Every day, parents make dozens and dozens of decisions on their children's behalf. Every day, parents have to uh, deal with dozens of requests, if not hundreds of requests and demands, and they often have to say hard things to their children to whom they have a certain responsibility. And sometimes, children make poor choices, and we have to say hard things to them because of that. And I, as a sinful father, I routinely struggle to care for my three daughters with patience and kindness and thoughtfulness, even though I love them. I love them so much, yet I'm often frustrated by how small my love is. I often feel like I don't have enough love to give to my children. And I think that's sometimes how we feel when we think of God as our Father. Some of us have had very challenging relationships with our fathers, haven't we? Maybe you grew up without a father or with an absentee father. So it's not always easy for us to conceive what it means for God to be our father. And so we impose our limitations on God's ability or the desire to love us. So as I, as I reflect on what Paul is saying here, I find it astounding and profoundly helpful and encouraging to consider this truth, that our Heavenly Father, His love for us is so great and so boundless and so divine and so holy that He can lavish His love on each of His children all billions of his children, each of them as if he or she were his only child. And it is out of that robust security and contentedness that comes from being the beloved child of God, beloved of God, that our hearts 
overflow with a yearning to imitate our Father. Now, the order here is very important. Our imitation follows our adoption in Christ. The call to walk in a, in, in a way that is worthy of the gospel rests on the wonder of being found in Christ. Adoption first, imitation second. Wonder first, walk second. This order is not reversible. And this is so important because in the next 11 verses or so in chapter 5, Paul very directly addresses sin. Sin in the church. And he calls his people, he calls his friends in Ephesus to holiness and pure living. And if we get this backwards, we will always wonder whether we are imitating God accurately enough whether we are representing him faithfully enough to earn and to maintain our standing before God. We will always live in insecurity and the fear of disappointing God, never truly convinced that he truly and forever loves us. But the true gospel is this. We obey God because we are loved. We are not loved because we obey. We imitate God because we are his beloved. We are not his beloved because we imitate him. So it's no surprise then that that is precisely what we are first called to imitate, his divine love. We imitate God by walking in his love. Verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, elsewhere in his letters, Paul has a lot to say about the attributes of Christian love. But here, Paul is content to simply point to the greatest demonstration of God's love for unworthy sinners. How did God love us? By sending his son Jesus, who loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul here is using the language of the Old Testament system of burnt sacrifices, where God instructed his ancient people to offer animal and grain sacrifices as expressions of gratitude, as expressions of remorse and repentance. But God did not accept every offering. Even when people followed the rules carefully, not every sacrifice was accepted because they were offered with hearts that were far from God. But when God's people offer sacrifices with hearts of gratitude and true repentance and humility, and they burnt the sacrifices on the altar, that, that smoke that went up to heaven was a picture of a sweet and pleasing aroma to God. But, even the most heartfelt and lavish sacrifice could never remove the sin that alienated us from God. A better sacrifice was required. Not the sacrifice of an animal, but the sacrifice of God's own Son who offered himself up, his own life up, not to pay for his own sins because he had none, but to pay for the sins of his people. This 
was a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. When Jesus died on the cross to pay for the price of your sins and mine, the sweetest fragrance rose up to the throne of God, and the Father was pleased. This was the act of supreme love, an act of self-denial for the good of undeserving and wicked sinners. In the same way, when the people who live by the Spirit of Jesus today deny themselves and sacrifice for the good of others, even their enemies, they exude the fragrant aroma of Christ. They smell like Jesus. Friends, do people sense the fragrance of Christ in you? When people see the way you deal with a difficult coworker or supervisor, when they see how you relate to your parents or to your children, when they see the way that you respond with kindness to unkind people, reasonableness to unreasonable people, do they sense the fragrance of Christ in you? When people see the way you deal with suffering and loss and grief, when they see the way you handle money and resources and time, do they sense the heavenly fragrance of Christ? Does your life display a costly, self-giving sacrifice for the good of others that makes people wonder, how can God work such wonders in people who are naturally selfish and naturally self-serving? If so, However slow and however faltering, you are learning to walk in the wonder of God's adoptive love for you. And it is precisely God's adoptive love that compels us and enables us to reject everything that displeases our Father. In verses 3 and 4, of this same chapter, Paul goes on to list the kinds of conduct and conversations that are not fitting for God's holy children. And at the end of that list, he says something surprising. Let me read it for you, verses 3 and 4. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather, thanksgiving. That might surprise you. How is thanksgiving the substitute for sin? Thanksgiving is vital for fighting sin, because in thanksgiving, we turn our focus away from ourselves, what we don't have, what we crave and we fix our focus on God as the proper object of our worship. Sin is self-centered. Thanksgiving is God-centered. And through regular disciplines of worship and thanksgiving, the Holy Spirit gradually starves our desire for sin and feeds our desire for God. A number of years ago, I was in our church office And I noticed that there was a small pool of water under the sink. And uh, I took a closer look and I saw that there was a leak, uh, a steady leak in a seam between the water supply line and the sink. 
And I thought to myself, oh, that seems like a pretty easy fix. So I got up my vice grip, and I proceeded to tighten the nut where the leak was coming from. Now, unfortunately, I got my orientation mixed up. And instead of tightening it, I loosened it. And a powerful jet of water shot out of the pipe into the office, quickly flooding it. And I tried with all my might to stop the flow with my bare hands, but I couldn't. It was too strong. Thankfully, my friend Kevin was in the office, and he was much stronger than I was. And he, he was able to mostly plug the pipe with his hand while I ran around the building looking for the water shut off. Uh, by the time that I finally found the shutoff, even Kevin was struggling to hold back the water. We were both completely drenched, and there was a big, watery mess to clean up. I think for many of us, trying to overcome sin by sheer force of will is kind of like trying to plug a powerfully, fully charged water supply line with your bare hands. No matter how clever, no matter how strong and determined you are, you will tire. Water will eventually find a way through. In the same way, the combined forces of Satan, the world, and our own flesh are just too strong for even the strongest of us to resist in our own strength. But when we pour our energy into gazing and wonder and worship and thanksgiving at the God who adopted us in Christ, when we were his enemies and made us his beloved children, over time, this, this has the effect of slowly closing the shut-off valve of sin into our hearts. Over time, that powerful river of sinful desire will weaken and slow to a steady stream, then to a trickle. You see, walking as imitators of God involves a daily habit of feeding and starving. Feeding and starving. By His grace, we feed our desire for God through thanksgiving, and we starve our desire for sin. So as we finish, let me ask you, what are the practices and habits that feed your affections, your affections for the God who loves you? What are the practices and habits in your life that feed your affections for the God who loves you? And what are the practices and habits that feed your affections for sin? Feed the former, starve the latter. Now, some of you may be fasting from something during this season of Lent. I urge you not just to fast, but to feast. With thanksgiving, feast on the joy of God's fatherly love for you in Christ. And as you feast on Christ, rejoice. Rejoice because he is making you day by day more like your Father in heaven. And if you're listening to this and you do not yet know God as your Father, there is good news for you. God desires to lavish his love upon you as well. He longs to adopt you into his own household and call you his beloved child. And the only thing that he requires of you is faith. A simple, childlike faith in his son, Jesus who has done everything to qualify you 
for adoption. Let us pray. Father, we come before you thanking you, worshiping you, praising you that in Christ we have been adopted into the very household of God, beloved of God, lavished upon with his holy, um, irrepressible love as if we were his only child. Lord, what an incredible gift that is, and I pray that our life of imitation, our life of discipleship and faithfulness would be born out of and empowered by and compelled by that love as we meditate on it, as we give thanks for it, as we worship our way out of sin. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's respond with a song. going to take a, uh, use this opportunity for a Q&A. If you have any questions uh, in response to the sermon, uh, feel free to text it in. I think my number should be up there. Is it up there? No? 
Just say it out loud. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, there it is. All right. So feel free to uh, send your questions in, and I'll do my best to address them as best as I can. Got one here, yeah. Yeah. Good question. How do we show thanksgiving to God? Many ways. Um, we sing just like the way we just did. Uh, we sing privately. We sing corporately as the body of Christ. Um, we pray. We express our love and gratitude for Christ through our prayers. Uh, we also show our thanksgiving by expressing our gratitude by loving those around us who are hard to love, um, by meditating on the goodness of Jesus Christ toward us. Uh, we're able to then extend the forgiveness that we have received from God to others as well. Um, we show, we show thanksgiving uh, by giving materially of our gifts, the way that God has blessed us materially uh, through money, resources, time, talents, everything that, everything that we do in service of God and his people and the church, all of that can be thanksgiving. Pretty much anything that we do out of gratitude for God, um, out of the wellspring of his incredible blessings, uh, can be an expression of thanksgiving. Does that help? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Over here. I'm sorry? Oh, good question. What is an imitator? Um, one who copies or mimics someone else's actions or posture or words or attitudes. Yeah? I think I've got one here by text. Uh, how do we get rid of sin? <laughs> um, we get rid of sin, I think, by doing what I described in one sense, by feeding our hearts on the riches of God's love and forgiveness. Um, we can't, like I said, just white-knuckle ourselves into holiness. Uh, that's just never, never going to work. Um, sin is too strong. Our flesh is too strong. Um, but as we gaze upon the greatness of Christ and as he feeds us in his uh, grace, um, we are then enabled to live in holiness. And so, yeah, it's a complicated and big answer, but that's what, we, what I can say right now. Uh, what measures can we take to lessen the flow of sin and the devil in our lives? Yeah, excellent question. What measures can we take to lessen the flow of sin and the devil in our lives? Um, like I said, starving the things that inflame our desire for sin is a practice that all Christians need to get into habit of. Um, the Puritans would call it mortification of the flesh, uh, putting our sin to death every day. Um, and in many ways, this is a, this is a very case-by-case uh, -case personal uh, question. So asking yourself the question, 
what are the things, what are the uh, practices, what are the, the things that I expose myself to that inflame my desire for the sins that I'm habitually falling into? You need to be able to answer that question. Like for me personally, uh, I know that if I don't sleep at a certain amount of time, uh, sorry, if I don't sleep a certain amount of time, if I go to bed too late, if I watch too much TV or Netflix or whatever, um, that inflames certain desires within my hearts that are not holy. If I um, eat too much or, uh, or uh, find myself overindulging in something, that inflames my desire for sin. So the question that we all need to ask is, what are the habits and practices that inflame my desire for that which is not fitting for a holy child of God? And um, I think that's one of the ways, at least, that we can uh, lessen the flow of the desire for sin in our lives. I don't know how, I, I've been here many times, but I always forget, how long do you take for Q&A here? Forty-five longer than the sermon. Okay, yeah. 